This is Transistor, a science series from PRX. I'm Christina Agapakis, and today on Transistor, we're going to talk about the future of our skin. Like our guts, our largest organ also has its own microbiome, a thriving ecosystem and a tangle of bacteria that we're usually blissfully unaware of. When we think of the health of our skin, we often think about keeping it clean. But there's a shift happening. Take David Whitlock, who's a chemical engineer. Twelve years ago, he stopped bathing. I don't shower. I don't bathe. I don't use deodorant. I don't use, you know, Purell. Instead, David sprays a mist of living bacteria that feeds off of his sweat. That's it. Because he thinks the future of skincare is not in soap, but in bacteria. I'll also dive deep into pimples. What are they really? And could they be the spot for cutting edge microbial skincare? Finally, we'll get to the future of clothing. Suzanne Lee is a fashion futurist who's developing microbial clothes, the kind that can live in symbiosis with your skin microbiome. That actually what you would do is feed it, you know, that you would have a nutrient solution that help all those good bacteria to repopulate and keep this healthy population trapped inside the material. When we think space-age future, we're used to images of gleaming metal and sleek, sterile surfaces, android-like humans with pearly skin and perfect hair. But what if our future is bacterial, one where we spritz and clothe ourselves with bugs? Okay, so our first stop is AOBiome, a startup company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. David Whitlock, the scientist who doesn't shower, he's the founder. His vision for a future of hygiene all started 15 years ago with a question about a horse. His girlfriend at the time was an equestrian, and... She asked me, well, why did her horse roll in the dirt in March? David, of course, wanted to impress her, so he began poking around into the bacteria you'd find in the dirt. What could these microbes be doing on the horse's skin? You know, horses sweat a lot. Sweat has a lot of urea in it. Urea hydrolyzes to ammonia. Ammonia on the skin is bad. It attracts insects. It, you know, causes irritation. The bacteria in soil that metabolize ammonia are the ammonia-oxidizing bacteria. And so I thought, I will, you know, I go to the library and, you know, download papers and read them. And, oh. Oh. The horses may be rolling in the dirt to get some of that ammonia-oxidizing bacteria, or AOBs. At least that's David's theory. He thinks these AOBs are crucial, that they can break down the ammonia from sweat and keep away insects and itchiness. Well, if it's important enough for horses to have evolved this behavior, you know, I mean, nothing about sweat is unique to horses. I mean, all mammals sweat. All mammals have sweat glands. And it had to be important for for all mammals. So David thinks we humans need AOBs the way that horses do. To understand why, you need to think about skin differently. 
it's not just a layer of cells stretched over our body, it's its own ecosystem. Imagine microbes that function as herbivores or others as carnivores. You have herbivores that recycle nutrients and then you have the, you know, go up the food chain and you have top predators. All these microbes have a part to play in the ecosystem. So it's all very complicated and until you really look into the details, you don't know which species are essential to keep the whole thing from collapsing. David thinks of the AOBs as a keystone species, like pollinators, that hold the whole ecosystem together. Pollinators may be a small fraction of the biomass, but you remove the pollinators and the whole thing will collapse. I love this idea of AOBs as these little pollinators buzzing from microbe to microbe to keep the skin honey flowing. Problem is, AOBs are very delicate. They're easily swept away by soap and water, and they take a really long time to grow. Without actually rolling around in the dirt, it's impossible to get that keystone species back. What you're saying is, let's say, someone like the typical individual who has been through several rounds of antibiotics now all of a sudden decides that he's going to embrace all of the microbes that they can possibly encounter, and they go outside here in the middle of Cambridge, and they roll in the next pile of dirt that they find. That was Jasmina Aganovich, a chemical engineer and product manager at AOBiome. It's not that simple, and it probably wouldn't be the best idea because, you know, our environment has also changed. Um, and as a result, we can't expect the environment to have the same sort of nurturing feedback as it once did. I mean, now even dirt is probably laden with pesticides and other things, and we've altered that ecosystem as well. Because we've changed our environment and our hygiene so much, it's not enough to just cut back on soaps and showering. You still wouldn't have that connection, that lifeline to the environment that would, if you will, inoculate your skin with the right kinds of bacteria. So Aobiome thinks that we're going to need something different to get those AOBs back, like a spray bottle full of ammonia-oxidizing bacteria or a shampoo that's biome-friendly. Like other microbiome products, we don't really know yet how effective these bacteria might be in the long run. But the message here is a really powerful one, one that we as a society are getting more comfortable with. The idea that clean does not mean sterile, and that banishing bacteria from our bodies and our environment can cause other problems. You look at the rural, undeveloped world, and people don't have acne, don't have eczema, don't have diabetes. There's a whole laundry list of disorders that are unknown. And so there's the hygiene hypothesis that somehow being, you know, dirty is good for you. But no one has found the agent of the hygiene hypothesis, any singular agent. I mean, there've been Maybe there isn't one. Well, you're right. There may not be one or it may be a combination of many different things. focus on one thing that David just brought up, acne. Acne is caused by a bacteria called Propionibacterium acnes. This bacteria is also, fun fact, in the same genus as the bacteria that makes Swiss cheese look and taste like Swiss cheese. It's Propionibacterium freudenreichii is the species. Um, you know, they give cheese, as you said, the odor and the taste, but they also make propionic acid that releases CO2. That's Laura Marinelli, a researcher at UCLA. The CO2 gas she mentions is what causes the classic holes in Swiss cheese. 
So you study a very glamorous subject. Yes. I study um, the microorganisms that are associated with the skin disease acne. What is the sort of experimental process? Are you popping people's pimples? <laughs> or, you know, how do you get started? Thankfully, no. Um, we have donors come into the lab. And we, we use those um, pore strips, those the little things that you put on your nose. Pimples are tiny sacks full of bacteria, oil, and dirt in your pores. For a long time now, there's been two main treatments for acne, either stripping away the oils so the bacteria has nothing to feed on, or using antibiotics to wipe out the propionibacteria. This is what makes Laura's research so interesting. Once she pulls off those pore strips, she analyzes the bacteria and finds viruses that target them. Her research is showing that perhaps acne bacteria can be destroyed by these acne-fighting viruses. So instead of bulldozing the bacteria with antibiotics or harsh detergents, we could protect the rest of the ecosystem. We are walking ecosystems. Um, and acne is an interesting model because like, it's not um, something where it's, you know, it's a horrible infection. It is more of a, it's a commensal, but you know, it's a commensal that can kind of get out of check. And so you know, when you're dealing with acne phages, it's more like, you know, you might want to use them to reestablish a healthy ecosystem. Commensal comes from the Latin, meaning eating at the same table. So these are bacteria that are a natural part of our skin's ecosystem. We want to keep them around, but we also want to make sure that they don't grow out of check and cause disease like acne. Scientists and engineers like David, Jasmina, and Laura are beginning to show us a new way to live with microbes. But before bacteria can really go mainstream, there needs to be a cultural shift, one where we can start to think of microbes and pores as less icky and maybe even beautiful. And this is where art can help. My friend Noah Kaplan is an artist that I often turn to for inspiration. She makes sculptures based on ultra-magnified shots of her pores. So I've been looking at myself in mirrors to kind of get a close-up self-portrait view. And I've also been taking photographs of pores. And then I take those source images into the computer and create 3D models in virtual space in a 3D modeling software. She uses these models to carve the pores out of wood and fiberglass using a computer-controlled milling machine. Each pore is a few inches across and looks like a cross between gentle rolling hills and mini volcanoes. She plants Narcissus flower bulbs in some of them, so you'll see these gorgeous flowers bursting out of the open pore. I don't know, I'm imagining like popping blackheads now and like things coming out of them, and then that's a similar sort of the, the plant growing out of it kind of erupting, as it were, out of the pimple. Originally, I was making similar structures out of silicone, so you could actually push the material and pop the bulbs out, but it seemed like it was going a little bit too far. <laughs> I love talking and working with artists because, like scientists, they look at the world a bit differently. The metaphors that they use and the images they create can shed new light on scientific concepts can be kind of mesmerizing to study the landscape of your skin. I told Noah about AOBiome and the idea of deliberately adding bacteria from the dirt onto your skin. I love to see what the skin looks like before and after. I think sterilizing the body and the skin is really damaging and we've built a whole industry around that cleaning everything to perfection when really that ends up causing most of the damage that we fear in the first place. 
people didn't have evidence before they started bathing themselves. And there wasn't evidence that antibacterial soap was good for you before they started using it. You know, I think it, it swung too far because there was no data. You know, it was driven by marketing, not by science. This might be changing slowly, but what if we could go beyond soaps and spritzes and even the fabrics that we put on our body worked with our microbiome? Kind of like David Whitlock's AOB spray, could the things we wear actually support our skin's ecosystem? Suzanne Lee is a fashion designer who has been playing with that idea. Like David, her mission began with one question. What does the future of fashion look like? And and not kind of being concerned with what's happening, you know, next season or next year, but really 50 years or 100 years out. To answer this, Suzanne didn't talk to other designers or fashion industry people. She talked to scientists and engineers. And one of them, a material scientist, said something pretty mind-blowing. He suggested that she look more closely at cellulose, the plant fiber that's in cotton. That same fiber could be produced by this living organism, like a bacteria, and rather than sow a plant in a field, you could actually ferment a bacteria in a vat of liquid. So Suzanne makes fabric using microbes. Her process is similar to making kombucha, the fermented tea drink. She fills bathtub-like containers with sweetened green tea and lets it ferment. Bacteria and yeast consume the sugar in the tea, transforming it into a fizzy, sour treat. And while they work, they also form a squishy mat of cellulose that floats to the top of the liquid. We just started out drying it and realized that it had the quality of something like a vegetable leather. Suzanne makes clothes with this dried out and pasteurized cellulose that looks somewhere between a futuristic translucent exoskeleton and a regular leather jacket. Her clothes seem more biological than clothes made from plant fibers, but they're not yet made with still living bacteria. That's still a way off. And first we've got to get past the ick factor to see what can happen. It's quite logical that you would want your garment in some way to be, to be living to have, you know, its own microbiome that is completely symbiotic with yours, um, that has, so that 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 garment layer has a, you know, an intelligence to it that maybe is sensing your own body. Um, You know, this idea of the skin being the largest organ that we have, rather than covering up and killing the active microbes on the surface, to work with that. Of course, living clothing would raise other issues, such as how you'd clean it. That's often the first question that kids ask. And when I was trying to explain this idea of growing garments, the first thing they said was, so do you get to feed it? <laughs> um, and, and like, what happened? How do you keep it clean? And so we talked about this idea of instead of putting your garment in a washing machine and then, you know, filling it with a chemical that washes out the dirt, that actually what you would do is feed it, you know, that you would have a nutrient solution that actually, you know, help all those good bacteria to be healthy, to repopulate and to therefore help to repair that garment or to eat the dirt or whatever to actually keep this healthy population trapped inside the material. This is what I mean about artists seeing the world a bit differently. Visions of the future like Suzanne's can invigorate science with a new kind of creativity, if we let them. I started out, I was quite good at science, and then, you know, I had a couple of teachers that made me feel like I didn't know what I was doing or that I just lost interest. 
But but I've come full circle, and the conversations that I had over the years with scientists just made me realize that wow, there's just as much creativity um, and imagination going on in the scientific discovery process as there is in design, and that actually, you know, true creativity lies at that intersection. I love that intersection where artists and scientists meet, asking questions like, what will our closets and medicine cabinets look like in the future? How will we keep our clothes and cosmetics alive? Maybe we'll have to put refrigerators in our bathrooms. I agree with Suzanne, too, that most of these new ideas about keeping our skin healthy will come from these out-of-the-box thinkers. While we're still pretty focused on keeping things clean for now, I think that the future is going to be less about clean and more about balance. Next time I host Transistor, we'll tackle another of my favorite subjects, feminism and science. The Transistor series is brought to you by PRX. Subscribe to more episodes on iTunes and visit our website, transistor.prx.org, for more information, including photos of Noah Kaplan's sculptures and Suzanne Lee's fabrics. This episode was produced by Carrie Donahue, Shruti Pinamaneni, and mixed by David Herman. The Transistor team includes PRX Chief Content Officer John Barth, Content Coordinator Genevieve Sponsler, and Lily Bowie. This episode was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org. Mm-hmm.